Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So my guest today, Adam Fisher, has had many, many jobs in journalism. He was an editor at New York Magazine, at Wired, and several other publications. But a few years ago, he was attacked and essentially left for dead in the New York City subway, and he decided he had to get out of that crazy city, so he moved to an even crazier one, to San Francisco. There, he started writing about tech, among other things. Now Adam has a new book out called Valley of Genius, which tells the history of Silicon Valley. But he does so differently than anything I've actually ever seen before. To do this, Adam sat down with the 200 people who literally built the world we live in today. And he lets them explain if, as a result of their own handiwork, if they think we live in a dystopia now or a utopia. I'll give you a hint to the answer to that, that it completely depends on how old they are based on what they think. I will note that this book became such an obsession for Adam that he had to sell his house and open up a cheese shop with his wife in order to finish it. So if you, like me, are worried about tech and what it's doing to the world, this interview might put some of your concerns at ease, or you'll probably want to move to a hippie commune like I do. Business people should be shot. They always say, we're in business to make money, and I say, well, not really. You just want to make a a few millions or billions. But the return from park is about 35 trillion. Count those extra zeros and tell me what you're doing. They're just trying to be comfortable. So Adam, welcome to Inside the Hive. Uh, Can you tell us who we just heard and what the hell he was talking about? So that's Alan Kay. Alan Kay is maybe the biggest name in uh, the history of Silicon Valley, at least from a computer science perspective. He was a guy who was um, really everywhere, but he started his career uh, back in the 70s at a legendary research and development shop called Xerox Park, uh, Palo Alto Research Corporation, so right in Silicon Valley. Um, and he had, his vision was uh, that the computer should be turned into something he called dy- a Dynabook, and that is either the laptop or the tablet, the way, depending on how you want to interpret it. Anyway, and before, wait, hold on. So before he has that vision, what are computers back then? I mean, Uh, are they just? Good question, Nick. So he was operating in an environment and came up in an environment where computers were war machines. They were literally used to calculate atomic bomb yields. That was their purpose. Um, You didn't touch them. You didn't even see them. You gave a stack. uh, If you wanted to run a program on one, you gave a stack of punch cards to um, kind of an operator, essentially a priest in a sense, and he came back with a printout. Um, and it was always a man at that point. Hmm. So then, so he comes up with, uh, Kay comes up with this idea that there should be a personal computer. Is that essentially what he realizes? No, there was another guy. This is the first chapter in the book, another very famous name within Silicon Valley. 
another story that everybody in Silicon Valley knows. It's the, the story of Doug Engelbart. In 68, he unveiled a new type of computer, and the big innovation was um, a screen and a keyboard and something no one had ever seen, a mouse. Um, and it was considered radical, revolutionary, and really subversive. Like um, the computer that he designed um, was, would wait for the user to press return, um, and that was considered a, a waste of resources. Uh, but when he actually demoed the thing, um, this is this is uh, this is what they call the mother of all demos. The right? mother of all demos. Of all demos. When he actually, so I, so yeah, yeah, he actually yeah. demoed it live, sixty-eight in a stage in San Francisco to every the entire computer world at that time. They could all fit in one room, and. It just blew everybody's mind because the system he demoed looked a lot like the computers we use today. Uh, um, they were, you know, they had kind of a, that you could work collaboratively, like you use Google Docs now, perhaps, or you could even, um, you know, uh, you could even do a, a primitive Skype. So it was really a look into the future and everybody said, we want to build that. We want to commercialize that. And that's when Xerox Park and Alan Kay come in in the early 70s. Okay, that's the next step, chapter two. Um, so, so before we get to chapter two, so for, for people out there that are saying, they're probably listening and wondering if we're just going to talk about uh, the history of computing from the 1970s and so on, we are going to get to how this all relates to today, including Facebook and Russian hackers and artificial intelligence going to kill us all, things like that, although you and I, Adam, have a very different opinion about all those things. Um, but I want to just kind of set the stage with... Uh, with what's going on in Silicon Valley back back in this period of time with money. Because when you look at the Valley today, it is all about money. Back then, was it? No, it was not about money at all. It was uh, um, actually Doug Engelbart may be one of the idealist, most idealistic men in history. He was literally saying to himself, um, how can I solve the problems of the future? There's so many, and they're coming on so fast. And then he thought, I know I can give people a tool that will make them more effective and um, more able to collaborate and, and solve problems. And so, uh, and he did this all within a research uh, university-type environment. And... Um, you know, he was he was kind of an engineer slash saint, really. Well, he so Engelbart died in 2013, so he didn't get to see what a wonderful world it would be when Donald Trump was president uh, and all of the things that would happen to get him there with with uh, Russian hackers and trolls. But he did get to see kind of some of the bad stuff that came as a result of technology. Did he ever have any regrets about the things he built in the beginning, or or wishes that he had have done things differently? He felt that the world had failed him and that he had failed the world. He died a broken-hearted man. Um, it's an incredibly poignant story. You can read about it in the book. But he, he felt that the whole um, project had been perverted really as far back as the 80s um, and, uh, the, um, and, the, com and the, the computer kind of 
profession or the, the project that had, had lost its way. And what was it that, that t- had took place in his mind in the 80s? That Was, that, was that Microsoft? Was it uh, the kinds of things people were doing with computers that, that made him you know, really believe that things didn't work out the way that they, he had anticipated? He would say that the, the turning point where everything went to shit was in 84 when uh, Steve Jobs went to Xerox Park um, and saw the Alto. Now, the Alto is kind of the Alan Kay's update of uh, Doug El- Engelbart's machine. He saw the Alto and then he turned it into the Macintosh, the first what we call graphical user interface. The first thing that you could buy at a store that had, you know, icons and folders that you could kind of move around on your desktop, drag and drop, those sorts of things. And the reason he he thought that was just a dumbing down of his original idea and the fact that you couldn't look at the underlying code and modify it um, to your exact specifications um, to his mind, was where everything went wrong and the computer just turned into uh, another product um, that, that, that was not, that, you know, that, and, and the power that, that he saw was kind of lost to and never delivered to the common man. Do you think that when you kind of look at people that have, all these people in history that have created these things, you know, Engelbart, K, uh, I mean, there's so many names in your book, uh, that anything ever turned out the way they anticipated it would with technology? I mean, I feel like every technology we set out to build is always used for re- for ways that we never imagined it to be used, right? This story is the kind of Ur story, the, the story, that, the, the kind of archetype of all the stories, all 30 chapters. You know, some utopian technology is created, there's such high hopes, and then it kind of gets to the marketplace or gets to the masses, and it's perverted. What's fascinating is that the... <laughs> the... the the point where everything goes wrong changes depending who you talk to, okay? And so if you plot it all on a graph, um, everybody who's developing technologies in their 20s thinks that this, the new technology is going to be the savior technology that's going to fix everything and make the world a better place. And then when you get to be about our age, um, those same creators... See that their tech, see how their technology is really being used um, beyond the kind of inner circle of utopians and researchers out in the marketplace, and they and they say, "Oh my God, everything's going to hell. Um, the the world, the promise of the world is ruined, and we were at the turning point where everything, uh, you know, you know, where everything went wrong." It really is more about the age of the person. Who's, who's looking at it than than the um, than anything else? So it's it's interesting you say that because I I remember when I worked at the New York Times and I would write about tech um, fifteen years ago or so and I always had this uber positive look and I can't it's it's something that I think about a lot like was it that I was just 
young and naive and uh, and oh, could only look at the positives of these things. Um, now, when I write about tech, I just everything to me just is dark and decaying and yeah. the world is coming to an end. And I can't tell if that's because tech has been perverted and it really has, or if I just don't have, if I'm wearing kind of a different lens as I look at it. Right. Are we, did we just discover this kind of cognitive bias? Are we just grumpy middle-aged men or uh, <laughs> is it real? And, and honestly, I kind of go back and forth on that myself. But um, I definitely, you know, I, you know, at every at every important turn, this happens. Um, it's interesting. Okay, so going back to the book, um, uh, there's so many different chapters and of the history of technology and computing and so on and so forth. One of the things I want to get to, because it's a little bit relevant to uh, the world we're living in today, is it's the website, the Well. Tell listeners what the well is, and then we're going to kind of get into what went wrong at the well. Right. So the the, um, the well is pre-web. It's what we used to call a bulletin board. Basically, you could call in with something, you know, a modem, which at that point was a big box you, that made funny sounds, and you actually would put the telephone handset into a cradle so it could talk to your computer. Um, and the well was really the first um, kind of really significant, culturally significant um, uh, meeting of, of people in cyberspace. Uh, it, it was launched in, um, uh, let's see, uh, 1985 by the guy who coined the phrase personal computer, Stuart Brand, and his protege, the first one of the first founding editors of Wired. He, he wasn't that yet, but he would become that, Kevin Kelly. And they were these Northern California kind of hippie intellectuals who are also into computers, which is a very classic kind of Northern California archetype. And they said, oh, wow, now we have modems. Everybody can gather together online and they can kind of type at each other. It was the first kind of interesting social media network and and a lot of interesting things in, in at least in a cultural sense happened on the well for example the word flame in the way we use it today was first used on the well to say oh he flamed me um, the word cyberspace as we use it today as this place we're talking uh, or meeting that's not not a real place like like we're talking now um first was used on the well in that sense. And it was kind of the place where they kind of created this kind of discourse and culture that we, that, that, that's everywhere now. And what's what, fascinating is this started as this utopian place with all this amazing writing, because it was text only, and it turned into this like cesspool of flame wars and bitter anonymous attacks. It got so bad that the actual founder, Stuart Brand, and was kind of driven off his own platform because he couldn't just he couldn't stand the trolls. Uh, but how long did it take for that to take place? It, it, was it immediate before you know that they started it? I mean, that was the nicknamed the the restaurant at the end of the universe, right? And and then it was all these wonderful, intellectual, fascinating conversations. And next thing you know, it's just it's essentially Twitter, right? Uh, does that happen? Immediately, or does it happen uh, over a, a, a longer period? It's of time? fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, it happened. So, 
the first conversation on the well was like, what is the well? You know, and one of the first things that the users asked for was an anonymous kind of portion of the well where they could be truly anonymous. They were sort of pseudo anonymous. They all had these handles, but you could look up and figure out who the real person was behind the nickname. So they, they did this truly anonymous portion of the well. Um, and that's when things went off the rails incredibly quickly. So these kind of very intelligent, erudite, interesting kind of intellectual figures given uh, an, an anonymous cloak or conference turned into absolute jerks and assholes and said the most insulting kind of things to each other um, literally overnight. And they had, to, they had to back off on that. And they, really, they realized also very quickly that um, conferences, i.e. These, lar- these conversations around topics, think like Reddit maybe, they had to be moderated, um, uh, meaning there had to be someone with the power to kick, kick off the trolls. Uh, or they'd all they'd also kind of um, turn into you know Twitter as you call it, uh, and so it was it, you know the golden age. There wasn't a golden age, and then it went all bad. It was like they had to learn very quickly these lessons that we're frankly relearning today. Um, what, what, but when so you say that so you say they're learning these lessons that we're learning today, but. It is the people who, who you know, with the exception of these, there are these moments where someone like, you know, Engelbart or whatever, somebody comes up with some massive changing thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but even those things, everything is built on, on ideas that already existed. There's no one that comes up with a brand new idea. It's not like, you know, in 1964, someone was like, oh, we should, let's, let's, here's the iPhone and here's Twitter and Facebook right. and, uh, and Uber and Instapaper, right? It, right? It's that, it's these tiny, tiny iterations. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing the, the advent of social media and, I mean, the differentiation between one platform to the other was was either the length of characters or the or the the, the you know when it came to video. I remember there was a point in time where so on social media, um, you know, Instagram had fifteen second videos, uh, Snapchat had uh, um, uh, ten second videos, and uh, and Vine, which was Twitter essentially, had six second videos. That was the differentiating factor, and it has massive massive implications for the kinds of content people create. But when it comes to you know the all of these things people are always looking back in the past when they're building the present and the future right exactly there's Why? no new ideas and and you can see if you exhume the past you can actually see you know this this building you can see where this creativity comes from it doesn't come from you know the 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 hand of god touching someone's you know imagination it comes from the past and it's iterative and it's bit by bit so why is it that when this happens, we don't look back and say, oh, my God, anonymity on the Internet is a really fucking bad idea. Look what happened on the well. We should not do that. Is it that, that everyone thinks these, these 20-year-olds think like, oh, well, our version of it's going to be better or we're nicer or something like that? Or do they just – are they oblivious? What's happening? Silicon Valley has never looked back because it's never been able to look back. It's never had a, a history. This – 
you realize is really the first history of modern Silicon Valley ever written. I think it's the best. I know you like it. Um, <laughs> but, but my whole point in writing this is to, to give these youngsters um, a sense of their past and kind of an elevated sense of their past. You know, I was so sick of running into people, um, smart people, you know, young CEOs who had the, you know, the, the, all the education and all the contacts and, and mentioning Atari and them saying like, oh, is that like Nintendo, that Japanese company? And Atari, hello, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, really, you know, is the guy, is the first kind of young CEO with like a consumer product. So he is, he set the pattern for every young kind of brash CEO that came after his his literally his his protege was Steve Jobs, um, and you know everybody who's making these gestures about you know I want to make the world a better place I'm you know I'm a young you know the the whole pattern uh, these these kids don't really know that they're actually mouthing the words and and aping the behaviors of of people in the past and and I just feel that. Silicon Valley needs to kind of raise its consciousness if we're ever going to get back on track and build like a, a future that we want to live in. Um, and the way to do that is to be a little self-aware about where they come from and what, what mistakes were made in the past and how they can do better. Okay, so I, I want to get to that specific topic. Sure. Uh, founder, founder of Atari, Steve Jobs, uh, both jerks, essentially, the way they ran their businesses, right? You know, I think I think it's definitely true with Steve Jobs. He, he betrayed his closest friends. He pushed his uh, child into, onto welfare and into poverty when he was younger. He did some things that are almost unforgivable. Nolan is a different kind of case. Uh, he's a Mormon. Um, he, you know, but it was the 70s. He was the first guy to give, for example, all the secretary's stock options. You know, it was like, uh, it was a very kind of, but it was a very freewheeling kind of place. You know, he hired all the hippies who dropped out of school. He said, sure, you can smoke dope as long as you get your job done. So, you know, I, I would say he, he on balance really, uh, um, was a good guy. Uh, you know, the, the really bad things that happened at Atari happened after he sold it to Warner, which of course is a, is a East Coast corporation. That's when the real drugs and um, Coke and stuff really, really got in there. But so, but there, but, but there was this kind of management style that was uh, sometimes a little aggressive. And, you know, of course, Steve Jobs, as you said, was his protege. And, and, and became the you know the famous Steve Jobs and one of the things that's so interesting is is not only do we build off the backs of other technologies that existed but we also copy the CEOs that have been successful and none other than Steve Jobs of course have been so impactful on people who have built and worked in Silicon Valley and in my opinion uh, have created 
a generation of total assholes. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we saw the way Travis Kalanick acted uh, as he ran Uber. We've seen the way that young CEOs have been incredibly dismissive of, uh, of women uh, in their companies. I mean, if you look at... If you look at the early days of Facebook, um, which you write about in the book, you know there's uh, in the in the women's bathroom there's a, a, a drawing of a there's a, a mural of a, two lesbians embracing each other. There's sketches of people having sex on the walls. Like this is not these are cultures that are being built that are uh, sexist. They're friends throwing each other under the bus for power and control. Twitter is the same thing. Um, is this something that is just embaked into the DNA now of Silicon Valley founders, or is it any? Is it something that can change? Well, I definitely think um, it's something to be that can change. But you know, look, um, it is true, and it's well documented in my book that kind of every virtually every foundational important company in the book and from atari to apple to napster to google to facebook were founded by people who in some cases were not even old enough to drink okay the the older ones were in their mid-20s so um and and so my guess is that this oversex my you know we're just going to have to I don't know. I don't know whether that kind of oversexed, rule-breaking kind of behavior is part of what um, a part of creativity, or is it a corruption um, brought on by early success? You could argue it both ways. Um, my guess, however, is that this kind of oversexed. Um, abusive behavior really has more to do with. Uh, men in their 20s than Silicon Valley, per se. I mean, really, this is the only industry that's ever existed in America where the really important people um, are in their 20s. And we're important when they're in their 20s. This... Okay, so when, uh, when we look at the future now going forward, uh, you know, just this past week, Mark Zuckerberg uh, got himself in quite a bit of trouble by trying to defend Holocaust deniers uh, by saying, you know, we all make mistakes and learn things. Um, one of the things that is also part of this history and is also part of the relevancy from today is that these founders never get themselves into enough trouble to actually get kicked out. I mean, I think Travis Kalanick is the one exception, and that wasn't even necessarily because of trouble. Mm -hmm. It was because of money uh, that the board wanted to go public, and he didn't, um, and, and was forced out as a result of that. But, you know, I wrote an entire book on Twitter. Jack Dorsey essentially lied his way to be the CEO for the third time by pushing out his friends and using Steve Jobs quotes and taking full credit for things he didn't do. And yet he is still running this company that, you know, f depending on who you ask, could be actually destroying civilization. Um, is there ever, do you think, going to be a world where these CEOs today uh, will be held responsible for the things that they do in their actions? So all I can do is answer this as a historian, but I think the history, historical perspective is interesting here. Every time in the past, and there's been multiple occasions where there, there have been these kind of 
technological monopolies um, or techno uh, that have have kind of um, kind of lost their way and lost the support of of the people who have to use them and especially the young people who have to use them. There's been kind of also in Silicon Valley you, uh, a kind of technological rebellion against the, those kind of uh, remote uh, abusive elites, whether it's IBM or Microsoft or what have you. And what looked like a locked down situation um, got unlocked and and these kind of um, dom this kind of overweening technological dominance has been you know undermined or overthrown right i mean the classic example again is ibm and microsoft and those companies didn't go out of business but they certainly were pushed to the side and i think you know i i i think it almost certainly will happen again how it will happen again you know we don't know. No one knows. No one has a crystal ball. Oh, fingers crossed that it happens soon. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Is the news stressing you out? Are you worried that Russia may be trying to subvert our democracy? Are you having a hard time sleeping because of all of this? Well, if so, the folks at Mattress Firm want to help you. Mattress Firm is here for you when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. Some companies have tech experts, other companies have coffee experts, some have legal experts. At Mattress Firm, they have mattress experts. And they're not just mattress experts. They can help you build your bed from headboard to adjustable base to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They've got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code podcast10. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0. For those of you that don't know how to spell podcast, Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial so you can rest assured that you'll love your mattress or your money back. And they also offer a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know that you're getting the best price for your perfect mattress. With more than three 3,000 stores nationwide. Not only are they right in your backyard, but this means they have the ability to offer you deals that no one else can. And that's on top of that 10% savings you've already cashed in on. So go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, enter the code podcast10 and start sleeping better right now. Um, all right. So I'm gonna, I want to get to, there's a lot of characters in your book, but I have a question before we get to those characters, um, which is, so this week we learned that Jeff Bezos is now worth $150 billion, uh, which is the richest anyone has ever been in modern history. Uh, it's an insane, I mean, just insane amount of money. So I have two questions here is, is do, do you think, you know, and when you look at the history of, of the Valley, at what point did wealth start to kind of overtake, you know, the creativity and this, you know, the Engelbart kind of look at, at building things? Um, and and the, the, that's the first question. And the second question is, there's, because, of, you know, money like like electricity it doesn't is there's not more of it that's created that it, it it just flows in different directions uh and now the money is flowing not just to silicon valley but it is it's a it's a torrent going that way and it is going away from poor people and this this inequality but yet they fail to see that they still kind of look at wall street as the place where all the money goes um 
do you think that there's a point in which society will realize that it's actually the tech people that they're using their products that are actually uh, leading to the mass amount of inequality taking place in America? Well, there's a couple questions in there, but I do think there's a, you know, follow, you know, if you follow the money, you, you learn something. And, and again, I'm, this is kind of a cultural history, but culture is created by the underlying economics. And here's what I mean. You know, I think the point where things went wrong, and you can argue it in many different ways, but is when Silicon Valley went from a place that made things and sold them for a profit. That's our usual model of capitalism, and I think we recognize the benefits of that, okay? Um, then they, we, we went to a place where Silicon Valley, by and large, does not sell things, right? It gives, hmm. gives everything away and then takes the, the data that's thrown off from that and mines it. So we went from a, a kind of, a, kind of um, a normal free market economy to this uh, extraction economy where we're mining or, you know, so it's a resource harvesting economy, which is no different from, say, an economy based on pulling uh, oil out of the ground or, um, you know, chopping down trees. You know, it, it, those types of economies, which we usually uh, associate with the developing world, are notorious for the kind of, um, you know, the kind of resource curse problems, the kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, other kinds of exploitation besides, besides kind of, um, you know, exploiting the environment. It, somehow it always turns into exploiting the people. And I think, and you almost always have these huge, in these developing countries, these huge disparities between poor and uh, rich. And, you know, we, we like to think that, you know, those economies kind of evolve into a better direction where it's like, you know, lots of companies all competing to give the best products to the most people. But what scares me is now we've got the, the, the most developed or one of the most developed economies in the world, our economy, which is increasingly global, turning into a resource or uh, an, ex an extraction economy. And, you know, all the problems that were, we, were associated with the developing world, we're starting to see here in the first world. And that, and that is kind of a problem, I think. And, you know, I, I don't think we're going to work our way out of it by vilifying the people who happen to have figured this out the, the, the best and first. I think we're going to get out of it by maybe changing the rules. Huh. I hope so. Because <laughs> uh, it seems like it's completely not sustainable at the, at the rate that we're doing it today. All right, so let's get to some of the, some of the characters in, in your book. Um, the way you wrote the book, which I thought was really cool, was you interviewed, uh, I believe it was 200 people or so, and you tell the stories based on all of their different quotes and interviews and so on. And... Um, and it kind of lets the, the story speak for itself. And there's, of course, different viewpoints uh, in, in different moments in time. I, I'm going to jump through just a few different questions and uh, uh, feel free to answer them quickly or, or take a, a little longer, however you want. But uh, first of all, what was the, the, what was the most fascinating interview you did? There were a lot, and I and I had the luxury of interviewing a lot of very, you know, 
kind of important uh, and smart people for like, you know, hours and hours and sometimes days at a time. And uh, one guy I interviewed for a couple days is a guy named Jim Clark. Um, and he, he, he literally did everything in Silicon Valley. Here's a guy who dropped out of high school, was educated in the military and ended up at Stanford and hanging out at, again, Xerox Park at the same time that Jobs was there kind of discovering the model for the Macintosh. So um, Jobs ripped off a computer called the Alto. And, and Clark was there, and he also saw the Alto, but he thought it was dull. He thought it was boring. You know, the graphics, the 2D bit-mapped graphics that Jobs you know, copied and put on all our screens, um, Jim Clark thought was boring because he was into 3D graphics. And he had actually... Um, in grad school, made all the equations that figured out how, how you would make 3D graphics. And when he was at Park, he put all those equations into a chip, um, which uh, he which is now called the GPU or graphics processing unit. And then around that new kind of graphics chip, he created a company, Silicon Graphics International, and then he sold those computers to places like Pixar to make, you know, animated movies, right? And then he got bored of that and ended up wanting to do something different, and he created a little company called Netscape, which made the first kind of modern browser. And when he when Netscape made this browser and gave it away for free, that marks really the opening of the kind of public internet as we know it, okay? He, he put some technology in there that allowed us to uh, transact securely, i.e. buy things on the internet. And, uh, you know, the, the, the IPO of Netscape in, in 95 is, you know, considered the big bang. That's when the first huge wave of money came into Silicon Valley. And, and you know, maybe that's when everything went wrong. But, but to get back to this guy, Jim Clark, he's virtually the only guy who is a, is straddles this great divide that I talked about between the Silicon Valley that made things, computers, chips, versus the Silicon Valley that made, you know, web apps. Okay, and he 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 did kind of both, and he was super fascinating. Um, not just because he did everything, but he was just so comfortable. You know, he was just very comfortable, very normal. Even though he lived in this giant mat mansion and drank incredibly expensive bottles of wine and had servants all around. You know, I'd get up in the morning, uh, I, I would come in the morning. Where, where does he live now? Well, he was living uh, in Miami Beach at that time, but I think he just sold it. sold it or it's for sale. Um, but he, he I, I get there in the morning, I'm like, oh, what are you doing, Jim? And he's like, oh, I was up all night coding. Like, that's what he does for fun. He's still like messing with code. Um, what is he building? Well, at that time, he was trying to build a security system for this big mansion he was in. Um, and he was kind of building a little company around and I with his son. I, I, I read in an interview that as you were interviewing him, uh, he just popped open a $10,000 bottle of wine like it was nothing. Like it was nothing. He, You know, we, I interviewed him all day. And then it was like 5 o'clock rolls around. 
And he said, and, and he goes, quit in time. He looks at his iPhone. He's like, oh my God, Apple stock is way up. I just made, you know, a million dollars or something. I don't know what it was. Let's celebrate, Adam. And he takes me down to his cellar. Um, and he has cases and cases and cases of like the best Bordeaux from um, what he said was the best place in France. I, I don't remember, but I remember the bottle was from the 50s, okay? And he, he said, oh, well, let's take this one. And he um, opens it up, and we were, and we're back in his, his, his like kind of listening room because I wanted to record our, our um, interview, and that had the best of coops. So he opens it up, and I'm looking for someone to like, something to talk about with this guy to say, those are pretty insane speakers, right? And uh, he says, yeah, want to listen to him? I'm like, sure. And he, he says, let's, let's, let's listen to some rock. And he pulls out Dark Side of the Moon, okay? And he has this special, like, high sample rate CD, the special printing of this, of, of this album. And he, and he puts it in, and he says, pick a song. And I'm looking on it, and uh, I say, number five. Uh, and then he hits play, and it's... Money is a drag, <laughs> you know, like, dun, 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 you know, and then he's literally, this guy has to be close to 80, starts dancing around the room and singing at the top of his lungs, all the lyrics, you know, splashing this, so this wine around. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'm not sure if anybody deserves all that money, but <laughs> I like your style. You know what I mean? Like he totally got it. And 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 fr- and then we did have a talk about Silicon Valley. Why aren't you there? And he's like, uh, and he literally said, you know, there's just too much money there. You know, it's changed. It's not the not the idealistic place that uh, that I grew up in. It's a lot of carpetbaggers who can get rich quickers and business school graduates or or recent kind of computer science graduates who did it because they they thought they could make a lot of money. You know, flooding into the place and like crushing the original spirit. That was what he said, and literally, it's what everybody said. Um, and you know, that's what this book is about trying to exhume and pull out these original idealistic kind of notions, these notions that really did make, um, things that made our lives better and made us more effective and allow us to like have a podcast and talk over, you know, uh, the internet and, and do what we're doing now. Did you see when you were interviewing all these people, I mean, you're, you're the people you're interviewing, are insanely rich. Um, did you see any instances where uh, they were they had changed from you know the research you had done in the early days, or where they had become better people or worse people, or or where they you know things that were just that that stood out as the result of the money that they had made? I mean, I know that we're talking about, I mean, there's probably only a handful of people in your book who didn't actually make money. And the, the one I can think of is Noah Glass, of course, the co-founder, uh, arguably the most important creator of Twitter who was written out of history and, and didn't get anything. Uh, but most of the people in there, you know, you flick through these names. It's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, you know, Sean Parker and, you know, Marissa Mayer. They all made insane, insane amounts of money, and 
I'm just curious if there was anything that stood out as a result of that. You know, I know some know. of these people socially, <laughs> you know, so, so the, a lot of yeah. the people that I met, I met for the first time. So I can't, I can't tell you, uh, what, what they were like. I, I don't have a before and after, um, in general, people, I, I was surprised at how self-aware a lot of the older guys were. Um, um, and they all wanted to talk to me, essentially to tell me, like, hey, you know, this new generation just doesn't get it. You know, like, this, like they didn't understand that it's not about just stuff in their pockets, you know. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, truly beautiful people like, uh, you know, Engelbart, but, you know, like, Andy Hertzfeld, for example, like just, just people, and he was the kind of the hero programmer behind the Macintosh, but he also developed what was pr basically a prototype iPhone in 95, um, and he is a, mentored a lot of these people who are, who are, you know, active today. Um, but I have seen, you know, stuff... You know, I you know a lot of these guys just they get a little too in, involved with like their own image or like gosh it's just it's just you know it's just hiring servants is difficult you know that kind of stuff where you just kind of roll your eyes and you're like yeah probably probably true I don't know I wouldn't know but. Um, but okay, so so uh, last few questions, um, uh, and uh, and we'll let you get back to uh, uh, back to San Francisco lifestyle. Um, yes, sir. W uh, when you kind of think back at these at these people, the the especially the, the historical figures in your book, do they? What percentage would you say are happy with the way things turned out, and what percentage? look at the world that we live in today and think, holy shit, that was, that was really bad. What we've done uh, is really bad. And then at the same time, those, those that do think like that's a really bad idea or, or that it's a really bad scenario of the world that we live in, uh, do they feel guilty about it? Though, though, <laughs> look, the, op look, People talk to me because they want they want they want to change it and they want to kind of you know bring bring the current culture back to its roots in in and they see it as a creative culture um, and want to get back to the kind of creative values uh, instead of this kind of like you know grow at all cost monetize at all cost kind of values okay. Um, but um, really, the but there and and people are pessimistic, but there's also optimism too. But the the optimism doesn't come because they they look around and see what a wonderful world has been created. The optimism comes because they knew they know that in the long term the future is going to be built by the optimists. Okay. Um, and so, you know, well, it's going to be built by the optimists, but it's going to be commandeered by the pessimists. Right. And I think that is kind of always true. Okay. 
And so they just want to rebalance, you know, you know, they're making their, their optimism is a moral choice to them. They feel like they have to be optimistic because otherwise, why don't we just all kill ourselves now and give up? And if we give up and stop, you know, stop trying to build things that are, are, that fix the problems that have been created by the last iteration, well, then we're, we're really done. You know, I think, you know, I, I, you, you brought up Twitter and I think um, Ed Williams is really um, interesting this way and optimistic in this way. And he's still active. This is not a historical figure um, for just so the listeners know. He invented a little something called Blogger, which kind of popularized the blog. You know, then he invented a co-invented a little thing called Twitter, which was another kind of online printing press, um, which arguably led us down this kind of path where we're trapped today. Um, and now he's building something called Medium. And if you look at the difference between Medium and Twitter, it's very interesting. You know, Twitter is ad-supported. Medium is trying to do a, a, a kind of subscription model. Uh, Twitter is short form um, and kind of based on jokes and personal attacks. And Medium is long form and trying to do that kind of more magazine model of, you know, long form journalism. Uh, Twitter is like hearts and no hearts, where Medium now has like an analog model. How many claps do you want to give this thing? Um, Twitter actually pays, I mean, Medium actually pays for uh, content. So in a way, you can see that these guys that are active now are trying to like kind of fix the problems in the version 2.0. And I think that's really what everybody needs to get together to do. Agree that there are problems. I think there's very few that, that think there aren't any problems and then get together and fix them. And I, and, and honestly, honestly, you know, it's the kids too that are, are, are probably going to fix this. Probably not going to be Ev. You know, it's probably some, you know, 20-something-year-old working on, I don't know, blockchain identity or some flying cars or I don't know what. But something is going to come out of Silicon Valley that Silicon Valley has always been, or for the last 50 years where the future is being made, people are not going to stop coming. Young, ambitious engineers are not going to start coming here and, and, and they're not going to stop being funded. And I don't think the government is going to start taking their money away anytime soon. And so so we need to we need to help these kids. We need you know, I just want to hand them all this book, frankly, um, because, you know, I think everybody should read this book. So, so so we can see that there is a way forward if you want to be optimistic. Well, it, it, I, I do want to be optimistic, but I think I might be too old at this point. <laughs> I, I really believe you You have to be. You don't have a choice. I just, because otherwise, let's just, why are we even talking? I mean, you must be optimistic because you, you are still writing about it. Like, if it's all just, just going to go to hell, then, then, then you know, then, then we would, let's just do something else. I'm writing about it because I think it has gone to hell, right. and, and you're pointing uh, it out, and I yeah. I want to point it out. Yeah, but I do have these. I I struggle with this thing every single day, and so do a lot of friends of mine that still work in tech. Yeah, where I look at the thing that that, that they have built, 
and the things that I have helped put out there by writing about right. them, and so is every other tech journalist in the world. And uh, and I think to myself, okay, on the one hand, you have the Black Lives Matter movement and 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 you me know, too, Listen Iran and Me Too and all these things, but on the other hand, you have. Russian cyber espionage of Donald Trump literally trying to destroy democracy for his own benefit. And there's no argument that he is trying to do that. He is attacking the FBI, the DOJ, the the media, you name it. And I think to myself, do the pros outweigh the cons? And I honestly don't know the answer to that question. And so uh, I know personally that I no longer enjoy being on these – using these products Mm -hmm. or being on these services – I it, I just hate it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that is that is a, a complete polar opposite from the way I felt um, ten years ago. Right. Um, well, that's so. the book. You know, how did we get from this bicycles for the mind world, which is this this that's the Steve Jobs phrase. You know, the computers are going to empower people. You know, to this kind of place where you know Silicon Valley has built this social media maze, and we're all kind of rats trapped in the maze. You know. Um, and how do we get out? And, you know, I can't, you know, and my job I feel is just to point, point out that, you know, there's, you know, the better angels of our nature will, if anything is going to lead us out, it's that it's, it's, it's rediscovering these kind of forgotten values that, that were always there at Silicon Valley in which really probably, um, was, that creative spirit really probably made it the dominant technological center on the globe. And so it, there's a, there, in a sense, is an economic imperative to kind of rediscover these values because that's what, you know, made the, 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 the big breakthroughs in the first place. All right, so I'm going to go to my last question here. At the very, very end of your book, uh, you kind of go through a cast of characters, and it was, it was literally serendipity who the last character is because of his last name, and it's Mark Zuckerberg. And you just say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Facebook. Unlike virtually every other important younger founder in Silicon Valley's history, he was never forced to step aside and turn his company over to someone older and, quote, supposedly wiser, which is very true. Um, Do you think that... Facebook, Twitter, you know, when you look at the history of these companies, uh, The Well, Microsoft, IBM, all these things, how much longer do you think that the present day juggernauts have left? That's the first part of my question. And the second part is these founders, Zuckerberg, Dorsey, the people that exist today, if you were to guess, and I know you can't predict the future, but I'm going to ask you to try anyway, where they will be in 20, 30, 40 years from now, do you imagine that they're going to still be involved in the world that we're living in? Uh, or do you think that there's a scenario where uh, they are off living in Miami Beach, dancing to, uh, you know, Dark Side of the Moon while drinking $10,000 bottles of wine? Well, look, when, when they're in their, you know, when they're approaching, you know, their last decade of life or a few years of life i hope they're all you know having a good time whatever that is for them but you know and and i would guess um and not just because i'm an optimist that in 20 years you know um zuckerberg will be will be viewed like we um view 
Gates today, you know, the founder of Microsoft is like, he was vilified and, you know, pulled, you know, had to testify before Congress and, you know, a monopolist taking over the world. Um, and now he's like this avuncular kind of force for good in the world, you know? And I think, I mean, that that's, that's the path, I think, that Zuckerberg has, has always set out for himself. I mean, he the first thing he did after he moved to Silicon Valley, I think, was pretty much call Gates and, and, and say, you know, ask for advice. So, um, but look, I don't have a crystal ball. None of us do. All I really know in the future, there's going to be more computers, more technology, doing more and more things. And we're going to have to find out, you know, we're going to have to make our uh, piece with that and figure out how to make those technologies work for us. And, and uh, part, of the, part of that is pointing out when they're not, which is what you have done so well. Um, but part of it is pointing out how we can do better, which is what I'm trying to do with this new book, Valley of Genius. Well, Adam, thank you so much. The book is Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley as told by the hackers, founders, and freaks who made it. Boom. Uh, Adam Fisher, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Nick. Thanks. Thanks to my guest today, Adam Fisher. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Mattress Firm. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week, probably with some bad news about something terrible that's happened under the Trump administration. Have a good one. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.